The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab a hold of them, open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21 is where we're going to be today. If you have a phone you, uh, or a tablet, you can open those up to 1 Samuel 21. There are hardback black Bibles under every chair. 1 Samuel 21 is uh, 242, 243, 244, somewhere, 44, thanks. 244 in those Bibles, but I want you to see this, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. As you are turning there, hey, uh, I don't know about you, but when the weather starts doing this, I start dreaming about the pool. I'm just telling you, like this whole week, actually last week and this week, I'm like, come on, bring on summer. I'm ready for the pool. I'm ready to tan. I'm ready to get out there. I'm ready to put on some swim trunks. I'm ready to do this. And yeah, I know it's only March, but don't rain on my parade, okay? I know there's more snow coming, but shut it. I'm ready for the pool, okay? I'm just feeling that, and it's getting me excited. And I was reminiscing about the pool this week. Why? Because it's almost warm, right? Uh, And as I'm reminiscing about the pool, I reminisced about four years ago, four summers ago, uh, we went through this season as parents uh, where where we were trying to convince our three-year-old daughter that the swimming pool was awesome. Like we were trying to convince her of that. I don't know if that, she was just not brought, we live in Colorado. She's not like living in the water. So, so we had to convince her that the pool is awesome. And, and what we do, we moved into a new house and our house has like a community pool by it. So we would go to the pool and she was three at the time and she would be wearing like a water floaty thing, device that you'd snap in the back. She was not in any trouble. I mean, I could have thrown her in the deep end and she would have been fine. She would have bobbed up and been completely fine. But we had to try and convince her to get into the pool. So what we'd do is I would jump in the pool. She would come to the edge of the pool. So Harper would get up to the edge and I'd be out a little ways. And I would say, come on, jump to me. Like, jump to me. And, and Harper's three. She couldn't really talk great at that point. Uh, but she, was, she, would, she would say, no. No, Dada. Closer. And so then I'd scoot a little bit in. I'd be like, okay, come on, jump to me, jump to me, girl. And she'd go, no, no, dada, closer. So I'd get a little bit closer and, and I would say, okay, come on, Harper, come on, jump to me. I'll catch you. The pool is awesome. You're gonna, this is gonna be great. Come to me. And she just, she'd be like, no, dada, come closer. And I'm like, girl, look at my man thighs. They are touching the edge of the pool. There is no closer. I'm as close, I can touch you. Like, I am as close as I possibly can. But the reality is that, that, that she was scared of the pool. She was scared of the pool and she was scared of me. So I started to try to rationalize with her, which always well, works well with a three-year-old, okay? <laughs> always uh, ideal. And I, I said, girl, the pool is awesome. Like, this water is awesome, okay? You're gonna, one day you're gonna love this so much, we're not gonna be able to get you out of here without threat of physical harm, Like, that's what this is. Like, I just need you to trust me. Jump to me. I will catch you. I'm an expert at three feet of water. Come on in. It's going to be good. But she's worried. She's got fear. She's got trepidation. She's afraid of drowning. She's afraid of getting hurt. She's afraid of the water. She's afraid, like, can I trust that this guy's really going to catch me? Which, listen, is crazy. It's crazy because, listen, if I want to do some damage, it ain't going to happen at the public pool, okay? So there's just other better places for that. So I'm I'm standing there, and I'm trying to convince her to get into the water, but my three-year-old at that point is in a state of desperation. As much as her little brain can conceive of it, she's in a state of 
desperation. And I think that's where we're at in 1 Samuel 21 with David. Like in David's life at this point, he is in a state of desperation. He's desperate. Oh, how things have taken a turn for the worst for this guy. Because back in chapter 17, a mere few chapters ago, in chapter 17, David killed Goliath. He killed the giant. He won fame and fortune. Everyone knows who this guy is. He is on the up and up out of the pasture, into the palace, things are going great for our brother, David. But then in chapters 18 through 20, King Saul, the king of Israel at this time, becomes envious because David is starting to acquire some fame. Some people are singing songs that are a little bit more favorable to David than they are to Saul. And this envy grows and it grows and he ends up trying to kill David tries to have him killed in battle. He makes unreasonable requests of him in order to marry his daughters. And then finally, when all else fails, he openly attempts to murder David multiple times. So yeah, David's in a, a desperate position. He's at the edge of the pool wondering if he can swim. The king wants him dead. If you, we, we don't maybe get this quite as much because we live in the United States of America, but the king is the voice of authority in the kingdom. And if he wants you dead, it's over. And that's the guy who's out to get David. He's on the run. We pick up in 21, he's on the run. He's on the run. He, he had to run away from his new wife, his home. He had to leave his place. He's on the run from his very best friend, Jonathan. He had to leave him. He's, he's away from his community. He's very much by himself on the road, on his own. Where can he go? What can he do? That's where we pick it up. And, and you see, in times of desperation, we can often ask these questions like, man, is anything going right? What is, what is going on here? God, what are you doing I killed the giant, yo. But our text today, the big idea, the main point is, is that even in our most desperate times, God never lets us go. That's the purpose of chapter 21, that even in our most desperate moments, the moments of such desperation, we're not sure if we can make it any further. God never lets us go. And there are four points in this sermon today. I'll tell you right off the bat. I stole them straight out of a commentary. One of the commentaries I read is by this guy named Dale Ralph Davis, and he is awesome. Uh, old Presbyterian dude, really great. Okay, uh, but they were too good to pass up. All four of them start with the letter P. And you know how I feel about alliteration. So uh, this was like handed to me. I just stole them straight up. Okay, so let's get after this. First Samuel chapter 21. We're gonna work through the text. You'll see these four points starting in verse one. So Jonathan has just bid his best friend farewell. David is on the run. And in verse one, it says, then David came to Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and he said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? So that's verse one. Oh, what, what happens is David first runs to Nob, 
Okay, and Nob is apparently where the tabernacle was located at this time. This is before the temple was built. Remember, Solomon, David's son, is going to build the temple. But right now, the, the Ark of the Covenant is found in the tabernacle, this moving tent that moves around. And it's apparently at Nob because Ahimelech, who is the high priest at this time, is there doing ministry. And the priest sees David come and he says, hey, why are you here alone? Like, bro, what are you doing here all by yourself? And my guess is that, that Ahimelech knows that there's some sort of rift between David and the king at this point. It's public knowledge at this point. So he might not know the full extent of what's going on, but he, he knows that there's some sort of issue right now. And he also knows that David is beloved in this, in this, this world. Like Israel, all of Israel loves David. So he's like, I mean, I imagine him just kind of looking around like, well, what are you, what are you doing here all by yourself? Verse two, David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. So that's weird. Is David on a mission from the king? No. No. David just made that up. He lied. And it's not even a particularly good lie because he said, uh, it's a such and such a place. Right? You got to come on, give, give him some details. Like at least have, a, have your story straight, David. But he makes up this lie and... You know, we're not really sure why David makes this, this lie up. Uh, it might be that he doesn't know if he can trust Ahimelech. Like, is Ahimelech on Saul's side or is he on David's side? So he might be just kind of playing that lie to be careful around Ahimelech. Or perhaps David might be trying to protect Ahimelech by spinning this tale so that at, if, if, if Ahimelech is at some point asked or questions, he's not culpable. He, can, he doesn't have to cover up for David. Perhaps that's it. But in his desperation, David makes up this story. He, he, he tells this lie. And actually, we will see next week. We don't have time to get to it this week. We will see next week. It has terrible consequences. Terrible consequences. We'll see that next week. Now look at verses three through six. Here's where it gets juicy. Now then, what do you have on hand? This is David still speaking. Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have keep themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? Verse six, so the priest gave him the holy bread for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which was removed from the Lord, from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So in David's desperate attempt to flee from Saul, he hasn't even brought food. He didn't even bring bread to eat. And so he gets to Nob and he sees Ahimelech and he's like, bro, do you have any food? He says, you have five loaves of bread or whatever. He's not going to be picky about this. And, and the only bread that the priest has on hand is called the bread of the presence. Now, this bread is also known as the show bread. And if you've been doing the Fathom One Year Reading Bible with us, you just finished Leviticus. Good on you. All right. Well done. Sorry, you got numbers now, but like <laughs> Leviticus, okay? 
But back in Leviticus 24, we hear about the tabernacle and we hear about the bread of the presence or the showbread. These, this bread uh, were 12 large, very large, don't picture like, uh, you know, wonder bread or something. Like these are big old loaves of bread that are brought into the, the, the table, they were laid on the table every week in the tabernacle. And these 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel were put there. And then after a week, they were removed and replaced with hot bread. And then that removed bread would be given to the priests. And that's what the priests would eat in the tabernacle. Now, David's men are obviously not priests. David is not qualified to eat this bread, but Ahimelech bends the rules a little bit. He bends the rules probably, probably because of David's reputation. And it might tip his hand a little bit that this guy's on team David. He's on team David because he's gonna help him out and give him some bread. And it's here I wanna make my first point about times of desperation, y'all. See, see in, in David's desperation, we see God's provision. It's in his desperation that we see provision. God literally provides his daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. It's like, oh, he's answering the Lord's prayer before the Lord was even born, right? And you're like, well, like the skeptic part of you is like, well, it doesn't really seem like God's providing it, right? David asked for it. And Ahimelech's trying to help his buddy out. Like, so, so it's more like Ahimelech's providing it, right? Not God, but follow with me here. It wasn't unusual in ancient times for bread to be given to a deity like this. This was not a unique thing to the Hebrews, okay? We have pagan records of this very thing, of, of giving bread to a deity, to an idol in a temple or something. But the Hebrew version is, is much different than the pagan version. See, the bread offered to pagan gods was literally to feed the gods. Now, obviously, they're not like munching it up, right? They're not like chewing on it. They're, maybe they're like inhaling divine sustenance from this bread. I don't know exactly how they you know, reconcile this in their little brains, but, but they thought that they bring this food to the idol or to the God, and it was required to feed and sustain and nourish that God. That was how it was practiced. Not so with the Israelites, See, the bread wasn't food for Yahweh. The bread represented Yahweh's provision for his people. That's why it went to feed the priests. See, you would never give sacrificed bread to a pagan idol out to the priests to eat because that bread belonged to the God. This bread was from Yahweh for God's people. God provides for his people. The people don't provide for God. It's the difference. And this is also why Paul will say in his sermon in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, these verses, I put it up on the screen. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, Paul is speaking into the same culture that thought we've got to get food for the gods. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Our God gives you everything. He provides for you. And we're seeing that in desperation, we see God's provision. Now we see this again in verse seven. Look at this, verse seven. 
Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, destined, uh, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now that verse might explain also why David is playing the lie, because he might see this you know, rascally Doeg, pregnant with a baby boy, Consider Doeg, that sounds cool, right? Doeg is not like that biblical name that's gonna be on the top 10 list, okay? But he, he, says, he says, ah, there's Doeg, he's one of Saul's goons, like maybe I should not explain exactly why I'm here, so that might explain this. But then verse eight, it says, that David said to Ahimelech, then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, is, uh, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there's none like that. Give it to me. All right. So not only is there provision in terms of literal daily bread, like sustenance, but there's also provision of a means of protection. David didn't bring snacks to eat on this journey, but he was in such haste, he didn't even bring weapons. He didn't even bring a means of self-protection. And listen, when somebody is trying to kill you, it helps to have a weapon to protect yourself with. Well, he shows up and he's like, hey, do you have any swords? And Ahimelech just so happens to have one sword on hand, right? That sword just happens to be the sword of Goliath who David himself killed. And so actually by right, that sword should belong to David. So he's like, yeah, give that one to me. I'll take that big old sword. Again, it's a small thing. It's seemingly coincidental, but it's God's provision in this moment of desperation. I just wonder if, if you've experienced something like this. Maybe not to the full extent like David is, but... but but maybe you are or you've been near the edge of the pool on the brink of despair. Maybe you've been, felt pressed on all sides. Maybe you've felt your enemies closing in on you. Maybe you've been piled beneath a, a, a hefty weight of troubles. And, and if you're there or you've been there, you might be asking yourself this question. And I think you should ask yourself this question. Where is God still providing for me, even in my despair. In the midst of my big problems, where can I see God's sometimes even small provisions for me? A loaf of bread, a sword, maybe a, a text message that comes in right at the right time. Somebody, somebody helping you out in just the right way, in just the right time, in that moment of need. See, sometimes God will allow desperation in our lives because God really never wants us to forget that ultimately he's the one who provides for us, not the other way around. As if he needed anything, he is the one who provides for everything. That's what the text Said. So there's provision. There's provision. But there's more in this text, okay? Uh, let's look at verse 10. Verse 10 And David rose and fled from Saul and went to Achish, the king 
of Gath. Now, uh, this is a crazy move for David. This is like, he must be crazy desperate at this point because Gath is a Philistine city. All right, which means that Akish is a Philistine king. Oh, and what's more, uh, do you remember who was from Gath? Anybody want to guess this? Yeah, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4 says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. All right, so follow this with me, okay? Uh, David goes to a Philistine king in a Philistine city, which is the hometown to a Philistine champion warrior who David had killed. And oh, by the way, whose sword is he swinging around as he walks into this town? He just picked up the dead champion's sword. What is David thinking? What is, I mean, seriously, like what is he thinking? Well, all the commentaries that I read agreed on this. And listen, commentators never agree on anything, okay? But all of them agreed on this one point. David is making a dumb move here. This is a foolish Move In his desperation, he's making a dumb decision. Ever do something like this? Verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck his thousands and David his tens, thousands, ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. Yeah. Uh, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So this is weird, guys. This is a weird passage. Uh, they recognize that David is who he is. They quickly recognize, they, they, listen, they got the radio. They know that song. It's like a top 40 hit. David has killed 10,000s. Like that's what they're into. So they recognize that David is in fact their enemy. And when David realizes that they know that he is their enemy, he becomes afraid. That's what the text says. He becomes very afraid. And he pretends then, his solution is to pretend like he's out of his mind. He acts like an insane person. That's what his, he, he pleads insanity. That's what he's doing here. And the king is just so offended by this. He says, I don't need any more madmen in my house. And that will be David's means to escape the Philistines. That's the plan. Now, what in the world could this mean? Like what in the world could be the application for this little section of the divine scriptures? Is, is David just being a moron here? Like going to Goliath's hometown? Yeah. Yeah, he is. That's, he is being dumb. He is being foolish. But it's not what's said in this passage that actually is really applicable. It's what comes out of this passage that's important. Now, you see in David's desperation, 
from this experience, David penned two psalms. Two of the 150 psalms in the book of Psalms, okay? And these two psalms uh, are ones that we know and love, and it's actually our second point for this morning. See, in David's desperation, we see him praise God. God provides, but now David praises God as the one who rescues him from Gath, from this seemingly dumb decision to go there. So if you've read the Psalms, you'll know that at most Psalms, there's like a heading before the actual verses begin. And so these two Psalms are Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. In Psalm 34, here's the heading. Psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Now you're like, Abimelech? I thought his name was Akish. Well, they think, scholars think that Abimelech and Akish, Abimelech is like the throne name, the, 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 the throne name for Akish, okay? Uh, so this is a song that is written out of this experience, this bizarre little thing where David pretends he's nuts to save his own hide from his foolish decision, and he writes a worship song about it. One that, that gets recorded in, in the Israelite worship book, the Israelite hymnal. And then in, in Psalm 56, the other psalm, we find this heading. It's a mitkam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And that's what I had read over us this morning, Psalm 56. And both of these psalms, these two worship songs about this weird little event of David pretending he's nuts, both of these psalms are about trusting in God. They're about trusting in God in the midst of desperation. So here, look at these words from Psalm 34. Psalm 34. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Remember he said he was afraid? The, the poor, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And so he sings in verse three, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Birthed from this time he acted crazy to escape his own foolishness, David's testimony is, look how good God was. Look how good God was, even in my stupidity. Hey, um, you ever do something dumb that you needed God to rescue you from? That's why that's there. He sings praise even in the midst of his desperation. And I don't know if you've felt this, but I worship God differently when I'm desperate. I'll give you an example. Um, I used to be a worship leader. Uh, that was what I did before we planted this church. And then uh, when we left our previous church to plant Fathom, there was like a little celebration, kind of a farewell party for us. And one of the gals at the church came up to me and said some kind words. And she mentioned that there was one Sunday in particular where I led worship uh, that was specifically impactful for her. And uh, th that Sunday, see, this is what happened. Only a few months into my time at this church, I was there for seven years. Only a few months into my time working there, uh, my wife got sick. Uh, my wife got sick uh, and it didn't go away. And after a few years, that's not a misspeak, after a few years of getting nowhere with doctors, we got to the point where the doctors started throwing around the kind of words that you don't want to hear from doctors, right? So they started saying things like, 
autoimmune disorders, tumors, cancer. Like those are the words that they start using. And, and listen, we were 24, 25 years old at this point. Like that's not when you're supposed to hear those words. And they start testing Marcy for all these things. And while uh, this is happening, while this is going on, every Sunday I get up with a guitar and I'm charged to lead our church in praise and worship. Well, on this one Sunday that this gal was referring to, it was uh, only days after we had been in the hospital uh, almost all night for an MRI to check for a brain tumor. Uh, And we were still awaiting the results, which still baffles me that it takes two weeks for brain tumor results. It's like, we need those now. Thank you. Not two weeks from now, but we were in this two-week time waiting the results of whether my wife had a tumor in her 25-year-old brain. And I'll tell you, it was a state of desperation in our hearts. We were desperate. But I had to lead worship on Sunday. Uh, And listen, I was a wreck, as you can imagine. Like, I get teary just talking, but I was a train wreck. And at the start of that service, I, I got up to the mic and I just told the church this. I said, hey, church, there are times when it feels good and right and full of delight to praise the Lord. And then there are those times where you just don't want to. And I said, and this has been one of those weeks where I don't want to be here right now. But God is worthy of our praise regardless of our circumstances. And then I went on to lead the worst set of worship that I'd ever led before. I mean, from a musical perspective, it was the worst I couldn't hardly sing. My voice was all out of sorts. I asked the harmony vocalist, the harmonist who does the background vocal, I asked them to sing with me the melody because I just couldn't. It was the worst worship I had ever led from a musical perspective. And this gal says, that was the most powerful thing I ever witnessed under your leadership at the church. Y'all, sometimes God gives us our best praise in those moments of deepest, darkest desperation. That's the second thing that we see in this text. The third point comes actually in chapter 22. We're just gonna do the first five verses of 22. So let's go chapter 22, verse one. David departed from there and escaped. So he escapes the Philistines. He escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt And everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. So David escapes the Philistines, runs to the cave of Adullam. And the first, the text says that his family comes out to him. Probably because I would assume that his family know what's happening. And they're probably thinking, Saul's going to get us too. He might try and get David through us. And so they come down to the cave. They hide out his mom and his dad and his brothers. And then it says like all these misfits start showing up. 400 disgruntled people show up and he is the commander. He's like the, you know, the head honcho. He's the, you know, the leader of that pack. And so he just, show, they, they show up and, and it, so this is good, good times for this guy on the run. 400 crazies show up. And then verse three, 
After that, David went from there to Mitzpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So the family comes to the cave of Adullam. David realizes they won't be safe if they're with me. And so David goes to the country of Moab. Now, uh, he asked the favor of the king of Moab, please let my aging parents stay with you. Apparently, the king agrees, and David's parents are going to be protected while he's on the run. But here's the question, okay? Um, the, the Moabites, they're not Israelites. They're not Philistines. The Moabites are M- Moabites, the tribe of Moab. And Moab, if you remember Genesis chapter 19, Moab was born of Abraham's nephew, Lot, under some strange circumstances where his daughters get him drunk and incestually conceive this guy, Moab. Remember that gem of a story in your Bible reading plan? Genesis 19, right? Moabites are enemies of Israel all through the book of Judges. The Moabites and the Israelites aren't like buddy-buddy. So why would the king of Moab do David this favor? Why would he do this favor for David? To explain that real quick, by a show of hands in here, how many of you are Colorado natives? Just real quick, you're born in Colorado. Okay, that's more than I thought. Um, Okay, you were raised in Colorado. How many of you have or have had one of those Colorado native bumper stickers? Anybody else want to? Okay. Just, yeah, that'll show those Texans, right? That'll show all those Californians, you know, just clogging up our roads. Yeah, that'll show them, right? Like those bumper stickers, okay? Those smug little bumper stickers, all right? Uh, I am not a native. (gasps) Right? A gasp of despair. I am not a native. I moved here when I was two, okay? And my wife still lets me know all the time that I am from the East Coast, okay? Right? Even, even though I've lived here for more than 35 years and I married a native and I'm raising a native, apparently that's not good enough for her. Apparently that's not good enough to earn me that bumper sticker, all right? Because I'm not a native. Do you remember in the book that comes right before 1 Samuel, it's a little book called the book of Ruth. Do you remember that at the end of the book of Ruth, there's a genealogy that leads us to David? And if you remember that with me, let's remember that genealogy. Uh, Who was David's daddy? Jesse. Yeah, yeah. And who was Jesse's daddy? Obed. Nice. Well played. CCU. Bible. (laughs) Who was Obed's daddy? Obed's daddy was a guy named Boaz. Now, Boaz had a wife. Do you remember her name? Yeah, Ruth. And Ruth, was she an Israelite? Remind me here. No, no, no. Yeah, you're right. Now I'll give you three guesses, okay? Just three, no more. And if you get them wrong, I'm done, all right? I'll give you three guesses as to where she was from. Yeah, West Virginia. No. (laughs) No. Ruth was a Moabitess. Ruth was a Moabitess. And she was David's great-grandma. So what had happened is that over a century earlier in another desperate situation, 
When a woman named Naomi had the tragic death befall her husband and her two sons and the steadfast love and faithfulness of one daughter-in-law, Ruth, came back with her to Israel and in their struggles and in their poverty and in their troubles, in their desperation, they set up the leverage that David would need to protect his parents in his moment of desperation. And this is not explicitly in our text. I always just want to point that out to you. That's not, the, the writer of 1 Samuel is not telling us that. Hear me, he's assuming we know that as good Hebrew readers we would know the genealogy of David. And I think David said to the king of Moab, hey, do you know who my great Grammy was? She was named Ruth. She was a Moabitess. See church, it's the fourth, uh, third point. In David's desperation, we see God's providence. I know we've talked about providence a bunch in this sermon series already, but we're seeing this all through 1 Samuel. Who could have conjured this kind of thing up? That a century earlier, this coincidence happened? I think not. See, it's God's invisible hand of providence at work again. There's providence in desperation. Okay, we're almost out of time. One more, verse five. Look at verse five. This is our last verse. Then the prophet Gad said to David, do not remain in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now, this is in the same paragraph as we just read about the Moab king. In the same paragraph, where the heck did this guy Gad come from? He just shows up unannounced and gives David a word from God. The prophet of God just shows up out of nowhere, but I think it's our last point. The last point is that we see in David's desperation, God's prophecy. God's prophecy. God gives David direction and special guidance through a prophet in his moment of desperation. David's not left on his own to figure things out on his own. No, God's word comes to him through God's prophet. Now, to apply this, we need to do a little bit, just a tiny bit of work because as New Testament believers, we don't have the exact same thing, that guidance, the kind of guidance that David had, okay? Uh, the prophecy doesn't work today the way that it worked down then, back then. We don't have time to get into how prophecy works today, but there are not prophets who are going to show up in your life out of nowhere to tell us exactly what move to take next. That's just not how it works anymore. That closed with the apostles and the scriptures. And the reason why it don't matter if you don't get a prophet is because you don't need a prophet. You don't need the prophets because you've got the tapes. We got the tapes. You remember tapes? If you're under 25, uh, tapes, cassette tapes. <laughs> they were these magical devices that recorded audio uh, many decades ago and on, on durable analog tape, like scotch tape, but darker. And, uh, and it would, you'd find it strewn about in, in bushes and in gutters all over the place. Remember this? Anybody have a witness on that, that there's tape everywhere? Yeah, okay. Praise the Lord for compact discs. We'll talk about that next week, okay? Uh, Y'all, we've got the book. We've got the scriptures. We've got the apostles 
and the prophets recorded for us. And this book gives us all the light that we really need to find our way through the darkness of desperation. I'll illustrate like this, okay? One pastor uh, I heard tells a story um, about a Vietnamese Christian who did some translating work for Americans and assisted with missionaries in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Uh, and, and so this guy, this, this uh, translator, he's a Vietnamese translator, this guy disappeared and no one knew what happened to him until many years later when he shared his story uh, that he had been arrested for helping the Americans and he was put into a prisoner of war camp. So the story goes, his story goes, that when he was in this camp, he was cut off from consuming or reading anything that was in English, and he was restricted only to communist propaganda in Vietnamese. That's what they required of the prisoner of war camp stuff. So this guy would get a daily dose of brainwashing that over time began to take its effects on him, and he began to doubt. Over the course of years, he began to doubt, maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe the West has been lying to me. And it got to the point after a couple of years where one night he said that he finally made the decision that the next day he was done. He wasn't gonna pray. He was gonna renounce his faith. He didn't believe in this God anymore. Well, the story goes that the next morning, uh, when they assign all the prisoners their jobs for the day, he was assigned uh, the job of cleaning out the latrine, which was the job that nobody wanted, obviously, okay? Um, and so this man, as he was cleaning out a tin can that was overflowing with used toilet paper, his eye caught in the mess of the paper some, something that looked like English on paper. He hadn't seen English in years, and so he said that he quickly cleaned it off and snuck it into his pocket. And then that night, once his bunkmates had all fallen asleep, he pulled out that single piece of paper. And with a small little flashlight that he had, he read at the top of the paper, Romans chapter eight. And then he trembled. And he went on to read these words. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. If God is for us, who could be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And his testimony is that he wept in his bunk that night praying to God, crying out to God, asking God for forgiveness for his doubt. And then the next day, he request, requested the duty of cleaning the latrine again, which he went on to do for days on end. And it's because he realized that some official in the prison was using a page from the English Bible as toilet paper every day. And the translator would find it and clean it and smuggle it back to his bunk where he would read it for his nightly devotional. And thus, God's word kept him. 
Now that feels extreme, but hear me, church, it's in our desperation that we see his provision. It's in our desperation that it wells up to praise. It's in our desperation that we're sustained by his providential hand. And hear me, we are guided in our desperation by his very word, the prophecy of the Lord. And so I ask this morning, are you in a place of desperation? I've been there. I've told you about one. I've been there multiple times in my life where I've just felt like I'm at the edge of the pool. And the fear is real and the trepidation is real. And I quoted this verse to you two weeks ago, but I'll do it again because I think it's helpful. It's from another Psalm of David, Psalm 23, one you might be more familiar with. But in verse four, this is what he says. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You notice he doesn't say there is no valley. You notice he doesn't say that there is no shadow of death. He says, when you're there, I'm with you there. When it's desperate, you've got a comforter there. But we're nervous. We're like the kids standing on the edge of the pool and Jesus is just like, hey, come on. Come on in. The water is fine. I've got you. I've got this three feet of water. Kill it. I'm killing it. You've got the water wings on. You're not going to sink. Come to me. Jump to me. So the question is, are you in a place of desperation? Jesus bids you to jump. I bid you to come, trust, take heart, O Christian. God is with you. Even in our most desperate times, God never lets us go. Let's pray together. Lord, we bless you. What a good gift these stories are. What a good gift it is to see David running for his life in desperation and you consistently showing up to take care of him. God, you never let us go. Even when we walk in that darkness, you never let us go. Even in the moments of our deepest desperation, you never let us go. Even when we're afraid, even when we're nervous, even when we're depressed, even when we're anxious, when all of the world seems to be piling up on us, you say, I'll never let you go. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And so God, some of us need to hear that and believe that today because we're right there. We're right at the edge. Holy Spirit, would you comfort us with your rod and your staff today? While others of us, we need to believe this today in the light because the darkness will come. We feel like we've killed the giant, but it's only a matter of chapters before we're in desperation. And so help us to believe what's true in the light when we don't want to believe it in the darkness. 
So God, thank you for the testimony of your faithful servant, David. Deepen us in our love and our passion for you. Let us see and believe that you never let us go today. We love you. Lord, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.